All right. I want to start off with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have brought us together for for the apostles' teaching, for that's that's the word of God, for, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread and the prayer, all of those things that they did in the early church, we get to do today. And Lord, as we, as we dive into the apostles' teaching, as we dive into your word, we just ask that you would be with us, that you would soften our hearts to hear your message, and you would give us the encouragement that we need to apply your word to our lives. We thank you for so much for your son Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. And we pray all of this in the name of your precious son Jesus. And the church said, all right. If you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along in the Bible app, the YouVersion app, we have an event there. But we're going to be jumping into the book of Exodus again. And before we do that, I wanted to say almost every song that we sang today lines up with something in our sermon. I don't know if you did that on purpose or if that's a God thing, but I think that's really cool. But we're going to be jumping back into our Exodus series, our series we're calling Pyramids. And if you remember, we're calling it Pyramids because we're looking at God's Word in this layered perspective, where at the base layer, we just want to find out what does the Bible say, all of that historical stuff, all of that context stuff. And then the next layer up from that, we want to ask, what do we need to do in response to God's Word? That's the moral layer, the application layer. And then the next layer up from that, we're asking, how does this point me to Jesus? This is our fingerprints layer, where we're trying to find Christ in the scriptures. And then you get to the top layer, and we just want to know who God is. We want to know the nature of God. And so that's why we're calling it pyramids. And so I'm doing my best every week trying to pull out something from each of those layers in every uh, passage that we're reading. So at this point in Exodus, Pharaoh has been enslaving the Israelites. He's been treating them poorly. And God raises up one man who's going to be the one who releases them, who delivers them, Moses. He makes a promise to him that he's going to rescue Israel. And last week we looked at a series of plagues that God inflicts upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And these plagues come in this very predictable pattern where Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God sends a disaster. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. Then God removes the plague and then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, never mind, he can't go. And this happens nine times. And each time the plague that God inflicts upon Pharaoh and Egypt gets worse and worse and worse until the ninth plague, God blots out the sun for three days. And still, Pharaoh refuses. So today I want to open up at Exodus chapter 11. And this is the final plague. And I want to talk about where this story goes. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible app, whatever you like to read God's Word in, open up to Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We read, it says, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. 
the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. I've been, I've been praying a lot over how to present this passage of Scripture over the last couple of weeks. Because typically when you read this portion of Scripture and other portions of Scripture like it, there's two different responses that you'll hear to a part of Scripture like this. And either one of them, I really don't like. Here, here's what I mean by that. On one end of the spectrum, you have somebody who's maybe been a Christian for a long time. They've grown up hearing these stories over and over again all through their childhood. And when they read this part of Exodus, there's almost an apathy to it. About midnight, I'll go through Egypt and every firstborn son will die. There will be wailing in Egypt. And, and the, this person reads this part of scripture and kind of breezes over the fact that thousands of children just died or were that God was going to kill thousands of children. Because you've read it so many times that you're almost just conditioned to it and it doesn't bother you anymore. You're almost numb to it. So that that's, that's one end of the spectrum when you're reading a part of scripture like that. Here's the other. This person over here is maybe new to the faith, or maybe they've been a Christian for a long time, but they're just now getting into reading God's word deeply. And they get to something like this, and, and there's, there's almost a brain malfunction that happens. They're like, I, I, I know that in the New Testament... God is loving and compassionate, and 1 John says that God is love, and I know the kind of person Jesus was, and, and I just can't wrap my brain around how the same God who died on the cross could do something like this. And by the way, if, if you're either one of those people, that's okay. And if you have questions like this person over here, if you're wondering if it leaves you puzzled, that's okay. I want you to wrestle through it. I want you to ask these questions. Because I believe that if, if you're not asking tough questions about the Bible, that, you're, that I don't think you're really invested enough. If you're not struggling, if you're not always seeking and wanting to know more, then I don't think you're invested enough. You should always have questions and feel like there's something more for you to learn. So we have these, these two extremes. And here, here's where the problem were, these two extremes. You have these two people. Let's call them new Christian and old Christian, even though I think that those can be switched. I think you can be in either camp no matter how long you've been a Christian. But for now, let's just call them new Christian and old Christian. And new Christian and old Christian are in a Bible study together, and a passage like this comes up. And new Christian asks the question, how could God do this? Why did God have to kill the firstborn sons? What did they ever do to deserve this? And then old Christian usually says something like this. Well, you know, the Egyptians, they practice child sacrifice. And 
You know, those kids were probably going to grow up to be evil anyway, so God was just sparing them by, by killing them early. I mean this with all the love in my heart. As, 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 as much as I can muster, stop saying that. Don't. That's not helpful. Number one, the Bible doesn't ever say that. And number two, it's not helpful. It's going to take new Christian and it's going to push them to a point where they're starting to question whether they actually believe in God. That's the kind of thing that's going to just push them over the edge. And so I've been, I've been praying about this passage for quite some time because I want, to, I want to display God's word to you in a manner that is faithful to what the text says. I can't deny that the Bible says that, that the firstborn sons of Israel all died. But at the same time, I want to try and explain things and put things into a little bit better context. And so the conclusion that I've come to upon reading this passage and other ones like it, is that this text relies on the most difficult to accept belief that we hold as Christians. And that's the belief that we, human beings, are not good. Have you ever heard the saying, most people are good at heart? That's not true. Unfortunately, like if you looked at the Bible as one big story, think about how a story is told. Every story has a main character, and then there's an enemy that the main character needs to defeat. That's kind of how stories work. And the mistake that we make when we read the Bible is that we think that we are the main character in the story. Or maybe when we read the Old Testament, we think that Israel is the main character in the story, and they need to defeat their enemies. And that's not the case. In this book, God is the main character. He's the protagonist of the story. And the enemy, the bad guy, the antagonist, the one that God needs to defeat in this story is us. We're the bad guy. God created this perfect world, Satan tempted us, and we fell for it, and we have become enemies of God. And so when we read scripture like this, the question we should be asking is not, why did the firstborn sons of, Israel, of Egypt have to die? Really, the question is, why would God throughout all of the Bible purposefully tie one hand behind his back in his fight against evil? We were disobedient to God. We became enemies with God. We decided to side with the enemy. And rather than just wiping everything out, God says, I'm going to play this through. I'm going to work this situation out in which I get to defeat evil yet still maintain a relationship with the people who have decided to become enemies with me. Don't get me wrong, this is, still a, this is still a difficult thing. New Christian is still struggling with this idea, but at least it gets us on the right track of how to think about our relationship with God. So if that's difficult for you, it's okay. I want you to continue to wrestle with that. But at least I want you to have this concept in your mind as we read on. I want to pick up in verse 12. 
or uh, excuse me, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. God says, every firstborn son will die. And verse 7 says, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. It's very colorful language, by the way. That's a kind of a neat turn of a phrase. He says, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Okay, so just to get our context here, all of that conversation is something that's happening between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is telling Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. And then it says, hot with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. And then verse 9 says, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So in this grand cosmic battle where we are enemies with God, God picks out a specific group of people and says, they're going to be mine. I'm going to rescue them, even though they don't deserve that. So again, the question is not, why did the firstborn sons of Egypt have to die? The question is, why were the firstborn sons of Israel allowed to live? Because trust me, they were not any better than the Egyptians. Not one of us deserves to be spared. So God says, I am going to spare the Israelites. And let's look at what God's plan is to spare them. In chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take from them, take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So God has a very specific plan in mind in order to spare the Israelites. 
And he has a requirement to avoid death that otherwise would have come on the Egyptians and the Israelites alike. Each family needed to have their household marked with the blood of a lamb. Now make no mistake, this blood itself did not somehow give the Israelites power over God. That's not what it was. It wasn't some sort of thing to ward off evil. It wasn't something that gave them extra power, but it was a sign marking them as being on God's team. It was a seal on the house that says, pass over this house, they're on our side, they're no longer our enemies. And even though Israel was the main recipient of this sign, what we're going to read a little bit later, I want to kind of clue you in here, is that all of the people in Egypt had the opportunity to switch teams. We're going to see that a little later in the passage, and some of them actually did. But God says, this is my Passover. I want to step back for a minute and share something remarkable about the way the Bible was transmitted over the centuries. So in verse 11, we read, it is the Lord's Passover. That word in the Hebrew is Pesha. During the time of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible was translated into the language of their day, which was Greek. Just like we're reading an English translation, they had a Greek translation. And a lot of times, when you're, when you're translating a language from one language to another, you come across a word that you just don't have. Like, our language does not have this word. And so usually what they'll do is, instead of making up a new word, is they'll just take that original word and they'll, it's called transliterating, they'll just spell it with the new language's letters. Uh, let me give you an example of that, if that doesn't make sense. We have the word in our Bibles, rabbi. A rabbi is a very specific type of teacher, and our Bibles say rabbi. They don't say teacher, because we took that word, rabbi, and we said, we don't have a word that fits that, so we'll just carry it over into English. We have rabbi. And this word Passover is one of those words that when it got translated into the Bible in Jesus' day, they didn't have one, so they kept the word. And Pesha in Hebrew became Pascha in Greek. That was the closest word they had. Guess what Pascha means in Greek? It means suffering. Now, all of a sudden, I want you to put yourself in about the year 33 AD, and you're in Jerusalem, and you're staring at the Lamb of God on the cross. And it's during the festival of Passover, and you are celebrating this very exact passage of Scripture. For, for a Jew, this is like your major holiday. This is like, it's a religious, it doesn't always transfer, but this is like Christmas and Easter and the 4th of July and Thanksgiving all wrapped on one. This is the biggest holiday you could have as a Jew, and you're reading this exact passage, and you look up at the Lamb of God on the cross, and his blood is on the posts of the cross. His body was just represented in the bread that you ate last night, and you remember this passage from Torah that you've been reading all week. This is how you are to eat it. 
with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's suffering. It is the Lord's Passover, Pascha. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, I will pass over you. I will suffer for you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Isn't that amazing? Some people would say that's an accidental play on words that happen there. I don't think there's such things as accidents when it comes to things like this. So God chose, back in Exodus, God chose to spare the Israelites for no other reason than, he, than that he loved them and wanted to spare them. Even though you and I and everyone else, none of us deserve to be passed over. None of us deserve to be suffered for. This is God's free gift that he offers for us. But we need to receive this gift just like the Israelites needed to receive that. Passover is not automatic. God needs to see that we are on his team and that we are not enemies with him in the battle against evil. So part of that plan was being marked with the blood of the lamb, both in the Israelites' day with the actual lamb and in Jesus' day and for us today with the lamb of God. We are marked, we are sealed as an indication that we are not enemies of God. But another part of that plan for the Israelites was the institution of the Passover meal. The Israelites were told to make unleavened bread, bread without yeast, because they were not going to have time to sit and bake a loaf of bread and wait for that thing to rise before they baked it. Said so staff in hand, your, your shirt tucked in, your sandals on, you're ready to go. Because when, when God struck... They needed to be ready to go then. So verse 14, we, we read a little bit more about this, this meal. It says, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting, lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare the food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Okay, raise your hand. Anybody who's ever, who's ever baked anything? Yeah, everybody's baked something. At least most of us have. What, you know that little packet that you get at the store? Or maybe if you buy in bulk, you get a jar that says yeast. Anybody you can use those, right? I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but I, I assumed you guys already knew that they didn't have those little packets back in, back in Moses' day. You guys, you guys kind of understand that, right? Okay, so then what, is, what are we talking about when it says you must not have any yeast in your household? They didn't have a little packet. Okay, question number two. Who's ever baked sourdough bread? Anybody? Or at least knows how. You've baked sourdough. How do you make sourdough bread? Yeah, it's been a few days. Okay, well, let me refresh you a little bit. You have a sourdough starter. 
You don't make it with the little packets. That's what Exodus is talking about when it says to remove all yeast, or your translation might say leaven, which is probably a little closer, is that little sourdough starter. And so the way this would work is you would bake a batch of bread, and you would pinch off a little bit of that dough before you baked it, and you'd put it in a jar, and you'd bake your bread. And then the next time you made your bread, you'd take some of that starter and you'd put it in with your dough to help get the bacteria and the yeast going, and it would rise, and then you'd pinch off a little more and put it in a jar, and you'd bake your bread. And you would do this every single time. And so you have this jar that's got this dough in it, and at first it's fresh, but then over time, you've got more and more of this dough till a certain point you're looking at a year old jar full of nasty funky bacteria laden dough and it gets a little bit gross at a certain point that needs to be replaced and so when we're looking at this passage in Exodus and we're talking about the Lord's Supper which was mirrored off of this Passover meal. I've heard a lot of explanations about the yeast and how yeast is representative of sin, which is, which is true to a certain point. But there's other parts of Scripture where Jesus used yeast to describe the kingdom of God, so the metaphor really isn't perfect. But there's one thing that is true about the yeast in this bread, the way it was made back in Exodus, is that at a certain point, you require a restart. A reset. And that is what we're getting at here with this removal of all of the yeast from the household. Is you're taking that funky dough and you're throwing it all out and you're starting fresh. How do we carry that over to us today? When you become a Christian, when you become marked with the blood of the Lamb, you are saying, I'm going to start my life fresh. Every time I take the Lord's Supper, that's what I think about. This is me starting fresh. Now, with all of that in mind, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 5, and, and hopefully this helps you to understand this passage a little better. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, but he's also talking about our lives. It says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Israelites did this with the bread. They made a new, fresh start. And I want to jump down to verse 37 here in chapter 12. Where do we go? Here we go. Chapter 12, verse 37. We read, The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of un leavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt. 
and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So verse, verse 38 is important. Remember I said that everybody had an opportunity to join in? Verse 38 tells us many other people besides the Israelites chose to be marked and sealed and participate with the Israelites. We read, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And then in verse 43, we get into the specifics of how the Israelites are supposed to commemorate this meal, this event. Verse 43 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like the one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. I wanted to highlight this passage because it gets a little bit confusing. In verse 43, we read that no foreigner may eat of the Passover meal. That's very specific. If you're not a Jew, you don't get to participate. But then in verse 48, we read that there is a way that they can participate. But the catch is that they must be circumcised. And this is, this is something that the early church struggled with a lot. In the book of Acts, we read all about this discussion they would have, because this is kind of what they were talking about. If somebody wants to be a follower of Christ who was a Jew, shouldn't they have to be circumcised, just like Exodus says? And ultimately, what was decided by the apostles was, no, you and I are not required to go through with this covenant. But we are required to be set apart. We are required to be marked with the blood and sealed and on God's team. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Paul talks about this very thing. Colossians. There we go. Let me read Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, In him, this is in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. How? Verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in one sense, 
The same rules apply now as they did back then. The only difference is the details have changed on how exactly we are marked as being on God's team. Instead of our household being marked with the blood of a lamb, we are marked personally by the blood of the lamb of God. And instead of the Passover bread as a way to remember our exodus, we take the Lord's Supper to remember our salvation, our exodus from sin. And instead of being marked as belonging to God by circumcision, we are marked with baptism as the entry into our faith. Instead of celebrating the Pesha, the Passover, we celebrate the Pascha, the suffering of Christ. All of these things are the same, but Jesus brought new meaning to them in our lives. Let me go back to Exodus and read one more passage here from Exodus chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Okay. Consecrate is a super big fancy Bible word, and I try not to use big fancy Bible words. Consecrate means to set aside to be holy. That's what consecrate means. You take something and you set it apart so that it is for God. And so in this passage, God says the firstborn should be set apart from all the rest of the children because the firstborn belongs to God. And then when we jump down to verse 12, we read, You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. What is God getting at here? God is hammering home the point to the Israelites that your freedom, your exodus from Egypt was paid for by the lives of the firstborn of Egypt. Your freedom came at a cost. All of those children died so that you could have the exodus. We may not like it. We may not understand it. It might put a sour pit in our stomach, but that's the way it is. And what God is saying to the Israelites, in in a matter of speaking, he's saying, you owe me. So he says, set apart your firstborn. The life of your firstborn son belongs to me. But... I'm not going to collect on that. God says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to redeem what is rightfully mine. And redeem is just another big fancy Bible word that means to buy it back. So you're saying to God, my firstborn son belongs to you. His life is in your hands, but you are gracious enough to allow me to purchase him back. So what about us? 
as Christians, each and every one of us is a firstborn. Each of every one of us was spared at the expense of the Son of God. So in that same way, we are in a debt to God. We owe him our lives, but he gives us the opportunity to buy our own lives back, not with money, not with a sacrifice, but by our lives, by our actions. The way we live our life is our right response to God saving us. Look at Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be confused. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. Just understand that we are not obligated to sacrifice goats and lambs and pay money in order to pay off our debt to God. Our response to God is the way we live our lives. We are a living sacrifice to him. And finally, God expects us to pass on what we have received for free. So what does all of this mean for us? I want to read the very end of Exodus chapter 13. Excuse me, the very end of what our passage today, sorry. Verse 14 says, In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So what we're getting in this passage is the solution to a problem that we could never solve on our own. Each and every one of us deserves the same fate as the firstborn sons of Egypt. That's just facts. But God, out of the mercy and love in his heart, decides that he is going to rescue those who have faith and are faithful. Those two go hand in hand. They're married. They're like this. And Exodus 11 through 13 gives us a pattern that is repeated in the New Testament. In order to be passed over by death, in order for there to be a Pesha, there needs to be a suffering, a Pascha. Before anything else can happen, we need to be marked with the blood of the Lamb. That gets you started into the relationship. 
And in marking yourself as being on God's team, God asks for a circumcision, not by human hands, but a circumcision of being buried with him in baptism. Raised with him through our faith. And through this new circumcision, through this new marking, we get new life. We become the new bread. We remove the old, yeasty, nasty batch from our lives, and we start fresh. That's the pattern that we see that repeats itself in the gospel. And finally, once we have done all of that, God asks us, he expects us, to pass that along. He wants us to go to the foreigner and invite them into our household. He wants us to tell our children, this is what the Lord has done for me. So when they ask you, when your neighbor asks you, when your children ask you, why do you do this? Why are you a Christian? I want you to tell them that because of the Lord's mighty hand, the Lord's mighty hand brought you out of the land of sin. And when Satan stubbornly refused to let you go, God sent his one and only son to die for you. And this is why I offer myself as a living sacrifice to God. The way I live my life as a sign on my hands through my actions and a mark on my head, through my thoughts, through the renewing of my mind. <clears throat> that is what I wear because God brought me out of my sins with his mighty hand. <clears throat> we pray for Heavenly Father, we're so... God, grateful is not a good enough word for it. I don't have a word good enough for it. We are in debt to you. We owe you. We are just, we owe you our lives, God. We just want to offer to you our lives as a living sacrifice. And we just ask that it would be pleasing to you. We thank you for our exodus. We thank you that you have created new life for us. We thank you that you give us the emblems that we have, that we are allowed to be raised to life and, and to live in your glory and presence. And God, I know I'm stammering over my words because I just can't, I can't get over how merciful and how amazing you are. And so, God, I just want to tell you thank you. We ask that you would help us to go about the world, to our community, and the town of Alliance, the state of Nebraska, all throughout our country, and proclaim that you are the king, the one who brought us out of bondage. <coughs> we pray all of this in the name of your precious son. And the church said, <coughs>